We're in chapter 26 of the Gospel of Genesis, and it begins this way. Now, there was a famine in the land, beside the uh, first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Can you say Gerar? Gerar. Beautiful. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land in which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands. And I will perform the oath in which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of the heaven. And I will give your descendants all these lands. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. In our first portion of this, we see, of course, what happens when a person faces a famine. God makes very clear this is our second famine in Scripture. Our first famine, for what it's worth, came in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls this man's father. And as he calls this man's father, one thing we've recognized now, basically being in the last 15 chapters prior to this, 14 chapters prior to this, is that the man was on a journey. And God didn't call someone and wait till they were perfect and said, well, now that you're perfect, now let's start on this walk together. But rather, God took a man who was actually walking in ignorance, a man who was in the sense of being raised in an uh, idol-worshipping home. We read that at the end of the book of Joshua, chapter 24. And this was a man that was called out of all of that on a journey to discover God for who he really was. And with every step of Abraham's journey, he's going to discover something else about God. And one of the things he has to learn is God as provider. And not just God as distant, ominous Lord in the background somewhere, telling you what to do and hoping that it's good enough so that you can qualify in the end. And so in this, what we find in this first case of this first famine is that his father takes the trip down to Egypt. And that's in Genesis chapter 12. Now, that's the only famine we've had up to this point. Now recognize, we live off the land. Famine doesn't mean that there's no stock on the shelves of the store. Famine is because there's no rain in the sky, and because there's no rain in the sky, then the ground isn't producing its fruit. And if the ground isn't producing its fruit, we we can't live off the land, and we can't even feed our animals. So our animals die, so we can't get a good steak. And for those of you who aren't into that, you can't get a good asparagus, because that's dead on the ground as well. And so we're all hungry. Now, interesting that God throughout Scripture uses famine as a tool. That point where you discover that there is a hunger in your life. There was a time when you were, when you were fed and you were feeling satisfied and things were good. And then somewhere down the line, you wake up and you realize that there is some form of hunger that's dwelling inside of you that isn't being met at this moment. Now, interesting in Scripture, there are several famines that take place. And, I, and let me just say this quickly on this. Um, that the first, of course, is Abraham, and he goes down to Egypt. It will be, by the way, in that particular trip that Abraham does his first She's My Sister routine. Twice he will do that, in chapter 12 and in chapter 20. And, and by the way, for what it's worth, he's about 75 in the first one, and he's about 99 in the second. Now, I mean, that just tells me something, that somewhere, I mean, 20 years pass, and the guy still hasn't learned that lesson. Now, both of the times recognize this, that Abraham does that. Isaac isn't born yet. So the story about Abraham doing the she's my sister routine, although she's sort of his half-sister, but we've, you know, we've probably heard it said, a half-truth is still a full-blown lie, uh, in that, that, that the story somehow seems to get to Isaac. Now Isaac didn't watch that happen because Isaac wasn't born yet, but he seems to know it because he's going to pull that same trick here. Now, interesting, the second time again is here, and he is on his way to Egypt as well, and God stops him. The area of Gerar is basically right on the southern tip of the Gaza Strip, which means that he's basically steps away from entering into Egypt. And God says, oh, whoa, 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 don't go there. Now, for what it's worth, we'll find out that Egypt tends to be a really good symbol of the world. I mean, it tends to be a really good archetype of what happens when people run back into the world. And by the way, that is one of our first responses, if you think about it. I mean, we find ourselves in this hunger, and what will happen is the enemy jumps on that moment, and I don't want to give him a lot of press, but you're kind of like, you know what I feel? And there are appetites God has given us. The desire for companionship is one of them. Desire for importance or purpose is another one. And what will happen is somewhere, if we don't feel like they're being met, one of the first places we might go is the world. Now, look at I'm feeling a little bit lonely, so because I'm feeling a little bit lonely, I'm going to go someplace where I can meet people. But we all know you're not going to meet people, you're going to meet a thing. You're going to look for someone that's going to try to quench a hunger that God created for you to be quenched by Him. So you're never going to be able to find it in another person. 
So what happens is when you land that deal, so to speak, you find yourself twice as dissatisfied as you were before. And the reason is because now you got what you were thought was going to satisfy you. And in the end of it all, you're twice as unsatisfied. So you look at the person with that attitude, like what's wrong with you? As if they're with a problem. But in the end of it all, if God gave you a hunger for meat because you needed protein and what you were actually trying to do was eat ice cream, chances are you're not going to find yourself satisfied. Now, you might find yourself happy for a moment, but in the end of it all, your body isn't satisfied for what it, what it really needs. Now, and I find that in both of these cases. I mean, the next time we're going to see it, by the way, is in Ruth 1. And I find that interesting because Ruth 1, what we find is, is that there is, they're living in a town called Bethlehem. Could you say Bethlehem? Now, Bet means house. Lechem means bread. And what God tells us in chapter 1 is there was no bread in Bethlehem or there was no bread in the house of bread. And a little play on words there. And so what do they do? They, and actually they go and they head to Moab. Why is that interesting or important in this? Because what we find is that's where Israel came from when they were crossing over to, cross, to get to the promised land way back in the book of Joshua. Now the reason I say that is one of the places you might go much like in Ruth's situation, is to the past. I find myself in this hunger, and what I'll do is I'll start romanticizing things in the past. I mean, the moment you start saying the good old days, remember those days that were so bad that you cried out to God and asked Him to take you out of those days, and you look back at it now like it's something beautiful, you know that you're having a Ruth moment. That moment where you're going to go, and I feel a hunger, I'm going to go back there. And you watch it happen. Because you can see people and they're like, you know, I'm just not satisfied at the moment. And the ironic thing is they were satisfied when they were sitting in Christ and they step out of Christ and then they're like, I'm unsatisfied. So I'm going to go farther away from Christ to try to find my satisfaction. And there's a part of you that thinks, how in the world did you get a lobotomy in the moment you stepped out? Because you realize satisfaction was in Christ. Going in the opposite direction is not going to satisfy you. We go, oh, well, you know. Back then I had money, but you still weren't satisfied. Back then, you know, I had a bigger job. Back then I had a nicer car. Back then I had a nicer place. And you're like, yeah, but you weren't satisfied. So yeah, you might get those things again, but if you did, they don't satisfy you. And you see somebody and they were dealing heroin and they were making lots of money. Or somebody that was working in the sex trade industry and they were making lots of money. And then they step out of that, and now they get a minimum wage job somewhere in this country. But there's a part of them that goes, well, but at least I can go to sleep at night feeling like I didn't do anything wrong. And there's something about a clean conscience that gives a great sleep. And then, but somewhere down the line, you start going, you know what, I, but I can't buy all the stuff I used to buy. I can't just take on and just be the cool thing to everybody, because now I'm not like Mr. Bling Bling. And now what happens is you go, oh, but if I go back to that, and it's the same thing that was happening with Ruth because somewhere in there, there's a famine. But then there are other cases where we see good things. For instance, in 2 Samuel 21, when David sees a famine, he responds by saying, what atonement must we make for this? And I love the fact that what David says is, if there is a hunger here, there's something lacking. Clearly, there's some problem that I have with God at this moment that needs to be rectified. And then I think about Solomon who cries out as he is, as the temple is being dedicated, the temple that his father always wanted to build. Remember how David said, one thing I desire and that I will seek after, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. David never got to dwell in the house of the Lord. God was still camping in his front yard. Because until Solomon, his son, would build it, well, David really didn't see a house. He just saw a tent. And I really love that because really David, being one that God says, look, you're a man of blood and we are not going to build my house on blood. Which, by the way, will be um, very clearly what God calls Christians. Um, we're not about people of shedding somebody else's blood because the blood's already been shed at the cross 2,000 years ago. But David says instead of saying, well, come on, why can't I? Instead, he actually says, well, if I can't do it, at least I can help make it easier for the one who can and so with that, then David gets, gathers all of the materials so that Solomon basically has a prefab set up for him. And as the temple is built in Second Chronicles 7, he's saying, God, and I know you said that if we were to turn our back from you, that, well, you would remove your presence, your protection, and your provision. And so now we find ourselves in this place where now we're, we're in famine again. Because you're not providing for us. Because, listen, if I can say it simply, God wants you miserable when you're running from Him. He doesn't want you happy when you're not with Him. Why would He want that? Because this whole, the most important thing to God is your relationship with Him. Why would He want you happy without Him? 
People go, why would a loving God make a place so awful? Because God's not there. Why would he want you there? He wants to make your choice easy. He wouldn't say, wow, look, it's Disneyland. Well, I could do that or be with the Lord. Why would he want to give you such a quandary? He wants to make it easy on you. So now with that, Solomon says, so when you respond as you say you will in moments like that, and we turn back to you, would you hear from heaven your dwelling place? And when you hear, forgive. And it's God's response to that that he says something most, many of us are quite familiar with when he says, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray, turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, well, then I will hear, I will forgive, and I'll heal your land. And we use that in a lot of cases, but the, the context of that was Solomon saying, when, when we, your people, turn away, and we find ourselves in that famine, and we turn back and say, all right, God, we're repenting like we should. And, and I find that famine will be one of those situations where God will, well, he'll he really expose what you're looking for. In those moments where you find yourself in great hunger, either you're going to run back into the world, you'll run back into the past, or you'll run back into the arms of God where you belong. Now, in this particular case, what we find, and for what it's worth, this is the only chapter in all of Scripture that focuses on Isaac. Have you aware of that? I mean, solely on Isaac. We have 22 where we have Abraham and Isaac and that whole sacrifice, but you really think it's about the struggle with, with Abraham if you think about it. This is the only chapter where we really get a focus on Isaac. Interesting as it is, where he's sort of the sole character, in it twice in this text, in this chapter, God appears. Ra'ah is the word in the Hebrew, literally seeable. God appears to him. The Lord appears to him twice in this text. I think that that's profound. I mean, could you imagine what it would be like to see God? What would he look like at a moment like that? Now, clearly, he's something recognizable because the last time he appeared to anyone was with Isaac's dad, if you remember, when he was on his way into Sodom. And Abraham sees him and runs back down. He goes, oh, hey, 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 come over here. Please, let me get you some food. Honey, make some food. You know, and, and you remember that. And you know, here's the next time that God appears, and it's been quite a while. And what this shows me, if nothing else, is that Isaac is on a journey just like his dad was. Now, part of your journey, unfortunately, will be that you'll take a little bit of your dad with you. I don't know if he's demonstrated anything to you. Now, either that will be a benefit in the journey or that will put you kilometers backwards. And what we find here is a little bit of dad is in Isaac and it's a part that needs to be eradicated from him. And one of those things, notice here, is that when the famine goes, he heads he heads down to Egypt. Now, Egypt, by the way, for what it's worth, is sort of advertised as being very fruitful. I mean, that, dial, that, that Nile Delta area is a very fruitful area. There's a running river that tends to make things very, very... Matter of fact, they actually... Well, the, the way that they, they uh, irrigate is by the streams actually off of the Nile. And the way that they just stop them is they actually close it with their feet. They just take the silt because it's so rich. And they just close up the line. As a matter of fact, God speaks to Israel. We'll see when, when he's talking about taking them into the promised land. And he goes, you'll no longer have to irrigate with the foot. And the idea of that was there, was, you know, there were streams that watered your crops. And you just closed it with your foot from the silt. And that was what, you know, that's what we know about, is, about Egypt is that Egypt was always sort of a place where you can always get it if you need it. Isn't that the way the world advertises? You can always get it if you need it. If you look a little hard enough, it doesn't matter what it is. If you're looking for love, you can love, quote unquote, you can get it if you need it. If you want importance, you can hire a person to make you look important. You can get it if you need it. No matter what it is you're looking for, in the world, they're going to advertise. No, and maybe it's, you know, 65 VG payments and shipping and handling. You know, you mean you're, it's going to be really quick because you don't want to think about what it's going to cost you. In just the same way. And I love the fact that God appears. And the reason God appears is he says, stop. This isn't where you want to go. Interesting, though, he's not going to wind up in Egypt. He's still going to wind up doing what dad did in Egypt. And the other place where dad did it, which was in the Philistine territory of Gerar. So you guys look at, don't do this, please. And my, can I just say this? That at least in Isaac's case, in his favor, he doesn't go. I mean, there are times like this where, you know, as a pastor, as a friend, as a Christian, I'm going to sit down and go, hey, man, I noticed you're playing the Ruth trick and you're trying to go back to where you came from. Or, hey, I noticed that the world is really ripping on you right now and you just kind of, you got a taste for it. Please don't go there. Don't go back to Egypt. That's not the place for you. And, and I can tell you, 99% of the people I'll talk to and perhaps even you will go, yeah, 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 sure. 
But most of you still want to go. I mean, I can't not make you want to go by telling you not to go. I can just try to talk sense into you for a moment. And then if, if God were to appear to some people, no doubt you're still going to go to Egypt anyways. And I think, man, what about you? Where are you at right now? Because where he's at at the moment is at the border of Egypt. Are you there at the moment? Are you at the border of Egypt? I mean, you're kind of in that place where I still know I'm saved. I know I'm not going to go to hell. I'm still, I know still I'm saved. But ooh, that looks... Step. Nothing. No lightning. No nothing. And after a while, it's like, mm, 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 mm. hallelujah, hallelujah. Hey, come on, get off. Funky. All right, hallelujah. And then after a while, you're kind of like, mm, kind of nudging this way, kind of nudging this way. And sooner or later, it's like your friends are like, where did that guy go? No, oh, he's in Egypt now. And you know what the worst part is? He's in Egypt and he's miserable. And you go to talk to him and you go, you know, and here's the problem. If you're really running from the Lord, I will irritate, if you'll pardon me for saying, even the hell out of you if I do it right. I mean, I will irritate you because what I'm doing is I'm going to say, hey, 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 remember when you were satisfied? And you're like, no, 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 I am convinced. I can find it somewhere else. And you're going, no, you can't. And wouldn't, why wouldn't that irritate you? But on the other side, it's like, but God never replaced your seed at the table. God never went, well, yank that, all right? That's it, enough of Garrett, I tell you. From now on, that's it. You know what? From that point on, we're just going to leave that seat empty. That's not what we read in Scripture. Why do we love the prodigal son story so much? Because we know that God did more than leave that seat open. He stood at the edge of his house just waiting for his son to come back. Now, is that you at the moment? Because what we're going to find in the first part is, that he's going to, well, he's, this is what happens when you're that close to Egypt. Well, look at it. Now the Lord says, don't go down to Egypt. Live in the land in which I tell you. Now, for what it's worth, God says in verse 3, dwell in the land. And there's a really important word that God says. Now, this is something you may not necessarily see in the English, but in the Hebrew. And again, don't just believe me. There are all kinds of wonderful Bible programs and so forth where you can check this. Could you say the word gur? No, that was very good. But, but you can't say Hebrew like gur. You have to go, Gur. I mean, if you, you know, it's like, it's a loud country. Gur, your turn. Nice. Now, Gur is the idea of dwell. Now, the idea of dwell is like, think of it as you're staying in a hotel for a few days. Something like those lines. And the idea of it as dwell is like, look at, pitch your tent here. But don't, don't lay down those stakes. Don't start pouring concrete. And that's the word, by the way, we find is the most common word when we look at Abraham. He dwelt here and he dwelt here. And the idea of it was he kind of stayed for a little bit and then he kind of stayed for a little bit. It's sort of like he was couch hopping except he brought his couch with him. I mean, he was never a guy that really stayed long in any one specific area per se. Unfortunately, though, when, and then God gives us all of this promise, right? He says, now look it. And I'm going to do, and, and you're going to go, wow, you know what? This is what dad told me that was said to him. And I'm going to multiply you and I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to be, first and foremost, I'm going to be with you. Please recognize I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you when you're chasing after something that can't satisfy you because I can. I'm still going to be with you. And if we recognize it says nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, that either means that Christ is in front of you and his love to embrace or it's riding your back while you're running from him. Either way, which one do you want? That's why we go crazy when we run away from God because we're like, we know that that's, the, that's where it is. But unfortunately, when we get to verse 6, we read that Isaac dwelt. And this word's the word yeshav. Could you say yeshav? yeshav. Now listen, gur, yeshav. Do they sound even close to you? They're really not. Gur means to dwell, hang out for a little bit. Yeshav, on the other hand, is the idea of setting up house. And what we find is, is that Isaac, living on the border, when you're living on the edge, finds himself in the place where he's actually trying to set up. And you know, remember the difference between two guys back when the last time the Lord appeared. There was the guy Abraham, who at that point, if you remember, was pitching his tent. And then there was Lot, who was clearly setting down roots in Sodom. And now we're starting to see that again with Isaac here. Here's the problem. If we can be honest, inside every one of us, if we believe in Christ, there is a little bit of Abraham and there's a little bit of Lot, isn't there? There's that part that goes, you know what? I, I, I really don't belong here. I mean, I'm going to be on this earth for a small period of time and I have eternal perspective at this moment and I recognize I'm passing through. And then I also recognize on the other side of it, there's that part of me that goes, ooh, let's try to really make this as nice as we can. And, and in the end of all, those two parts fight with each other. Galatians calls that the flesh and the spirit in the essence, but think about it. And, and, and I realize in this, well, that's what we're finding here. 
is that this man who is the son of Abraham is still kind of hungry to just sort of set up shop. In a place, and, God, and remember, God says, just hang out here for a bit. There's a famine and hang out here for a bit. Now, I love this. In the famine, in Isaac's running, God didn't leave him behind. God met him right there. Did you notice that? And he'll do that with you too. You start running in the wrong direction and God will actually jump right in front of you and go, hey, hey, hey. And then you'll be like, where was God when I did all these stupid things? He was the one that was jumping in front of you that you were trying to shuck and jive to try to get past. Come on, look, look at, you know, that kind of thing. You're just trying to get past them. And then we want to blame them later. Now, verse 7, what happens when you're there? There's that deja vu all over again. And the man of the place asked about his wife and he said, she's my sister. Now, you need to recognize she's not his sister. If you remember, she's a second cousin. She's a grand, she's, how do they say that? A grand cousin or a cousin down one or I don't know, however that works. But uh, what, needless to say, she's not his sister. That's the point. She's my sister for she was afraid to say, or he was afraid to say she's my wife because he thought, well, lest the men of the place kill me for Rebecca because she's so beautiful. Now, ladies, do you actually find this to be a compliment? Because you're so, I mean, imagine you're going to somebody, because you're so fine, I'm just going to call you my sister so someone else can take you away, but they don't kill me. There's a part of me that would feel pretty used. But twice this again, this has happened before. And so with that, it says, now it came to pass when they had been there, notice in verse 8, a long time. Why were they there a long time? Because the boy was trying to grow roots. Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked through a window and he saw that there was Isaac. And then we have this particular term. If you have the old King James, it says sporting. You know, you know, it's like, oh, we're playing baseball together or we're playing football together or something. You know, it's like, well, the word's kind of mocking or playing, but they're obviously playing in a way we have in the New King Jimmy showing endearment. I mean, you know, kind of like husband and wife and they're kind of whatever they're doing, that's kind of play. Maybe they look like the Cosby show and they're kind of just nickering back and forth. Whatever the case is, Obviously, one thing's for sure. They, look at where they're living. The king is looking out his window. Does that tell you where they're living? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, has that occurred to you at all? It isn't like the king was shopping somewhere and he looked out. The, there he was with his cart and he went, whoa, what are they doing in the parking lot? He's looking out his window. But I want to remind you of this. Isaac got dad's inheritance. So the guy was bucked before he even started. The guy was rich. Before he entered into this, there was a famine and the guy takes all of that. Think about it. He takes all that stuff with him in the beginning. Remember, it wasn't like Ishmael didn't get this. Remember those kids, all those kids that went east, they didn't get this. Isaac got the the bank on it. So Isaac takes the bank and all of the livestock and all that stuff with him. So you can see the king looking and going, well, let me give you a nice piece of real estate somewhere near me. And so there he is, the king kind of looks out the window and he looks and there's the two of them doing whatever they're doing and then he kind of looks and goes, no brother should do that to his sister. Ooh, there's something to learn from that now, isn't there? You see those guys and they're young and they're just, oh, she's my sister. Well, then you better treat her like your sister because no brother should treat his sister that way. That's pretty evident. And so with that, I mean, you know, put a ring on it. So anyway, so... It says in this, they were there for a long time. So, I mean, how long before you get comfortable and you start easing up? They've been there long enough now that Isaac kind of feels like, I can just do whatever I want, wherever I want. And so now with that, it says that he saw him showing in German verse 9, Abimelech called to Isaac and said, quite obviously, she's your wife. So how could you say she's my sister? And Isaac said, because I said, and notice this text, lest I die on account of her. And there's something I recognize in this right away. At this particular moment, you realize his motivation was self-preservation. Did you notice that? And that, in the way, that's basically what dad said with, with, his mo- with, with Isaac's mom as well, with Sarah. And I find this interesting because there's a part of me that reads it and I think, but the best groom would say, honey, I'm willing to die for you. Because obviously that's what I'm missing in this. And I go, ooh, that's, an inc- that's a really heavy seed to be planted. Because if I recognize that, then I can't help it. I, my mind starts to move towards the cross. And then it starts to move towards Ephesians 5, where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ. And don't miss this, loved 
the church. Not loves, like a warm, fuzzy, give me a hug, but loved. It's an act in the past, and he says, and gave himself for her. If I'm to love my wife like Christ loved his bride, then I'm to crawl into her world. I'm to actually get there and die there because that's what Christ did. And I realized God prepped me for it here because there's, you know, those moments where you're watching the movie and you go, hmm, something's missing. And that's there on purpose. So you go, I'm not going to feel good until that's met. And God is planting that here going, look at, here's a guy that goes, look at, you know why I lied like this? Do you know why I wasn't willing to openly declare you as my bride? Because I didn't want to die for you. That's what he says here. At that point, I wouldn't be very complimented by it. And I think about that and I think, Praise God that we have the perfect groom who did completely the opposite. When we denied him, like Peter, he was the one who still openly declared his love for us. So Bimelech says, what is this that you have done to us? One of the people might have soon laid with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. And Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, don't miss this, because what we get in this is that we have a pagan country that has no claim to this living God yet, but he's going to identify in the last part of this with them. But in this here, he looks and he goes, Hey, 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 hey. Even in our country, one thing's for sure, you don't sleep with another man's wife. And why do people know that? Because nobody wants them sleeping with theirs. And here's a pagan place that still recognizes the evil of adultery. I think there's something profound in that. So Isaac then went, and he sows in the land, and he reaps in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blesses him. At this point now, what's interesting is, is that he didn't have to die for his wife. He openly has to declare her at this moment, and God actually protects him. The man began to prosper and continued growing until he became very prosperous. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds, and a great number of servants, so the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells, and that's where we get on our next issue with this. In the first case, might I just say it's the wimp out. It's the case where this guy has an opportunity to stand, but I, there's a part of this that actually kind of well, flips me around for a moment back in this promise that God gave to, to Isaac, and the reason is in verse 5. Flip back there for a moment with me. Because he says, the reason I want to bless you like this is because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Did you get that? Now, any of you kind of go, hmm, is he reading a different book than I am? Is that a different Abraham? Because the Abraham I have kind of got real janky with this kind of the promises and all that. And then I realized something. And then for what it's wealth in the verb text, um, there's only, in, in Hebrew, there's only two verb tenses. It's either perfect or imperfect. Perfect means it's done, it's completed. Imperfect means it isn't. And by the way, in the sight of God, if God were to operate in that mindset, either you're done or you're not. When you accept Jesus Christ, you're done. Not done in the sense of, well, okay, let's move on to the next person. In the sense that, look, at your sign sealed and delivered into the hands of a living God. Praise God for that. And it's all at the gift of Jesus Christ at the cross. Well, let me put it this way. So here we are, and we're watching a parade. And as we're watching the parade every year where we came from, in this tiny little town, which, by the way, our prayer list is more than twice the amount of people that the town we came from. And they had this parade on the 4th of July, and, and the people would get together, and there were probably more people in the parade than in the town we lived in. But there were like five belly dancer troops. I don't know how that happened. These guys that pretended to like, remember, they, they carried these surfboards without the fins on them, and they did this kooky little surf dance and all this stuff. This one band that always played every year, and a handful of other things, Boy Scout troops and those kind of things. And so we would watch, and you kind of know, okay, I can hear the sirens. This thing's almost over, because that's usually how it ends. And we watch one thing after another kind of transpire. Now, we could kind of see something coming. We could kind of see something leaving. So we could hear, chang, cha cha chang cha cha chang Okay, there goes one of the belly dancing troops. All right, here comes the Boy Scouts about to wave their banners. And we kind of know. We're watching it in succession. You're with me so far. But let's change the perspective. Let's say we actually got up on a blimp. Or let's just say we stood up on the, on the Houston Tower. From the Houston Tower, we may be able to look over from the whole thing and actually see the entire parade at one time. Are you with me on that? Now, the moment you gave your life to Christ, if your life were a parade, what part of the parade did Christ's blood cover? You tell me, what part? All of it. Didn't it cover all of it? Now here's the problem. I'm still sitting here watching the parade go by. So as I'm watching the parade go by, I go, ooh, that's a disgusting thing. I didn't realize I had that in me. 
And I'm just going, ooh, that's not, I thought that was good. It's not so good. And as these things sort of transpire, I'm still discovering things about myself. Does that make sense? But God isn't looking from that perspective. From where he's looking, his blood has covered the entire thing. It's a done deal. And I come to the Lord and I go, God, how could you still love me? And how could you still want me? And he's like, because my blood covered your whole parade. And in fact, that's the metaphor that John uses in 1 John when he says the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. And the idea of that is, is it's a parade metaphor. That one thing's walking away and the next thing's coming in. Darkness is leaving, light is coming. But God knows, he sees the end of it. Interesting, though, when he gets to this text, what God says is the first one is perfect and the second one is imperfect. And now, for what it's worth, and that just sounds too technical, please forgive me, but what the point of it is, is what he says is because Abraham, when it came down to it in the end of it all, he obeyed my voice. I mean, in the end of it all, he went into two categories, and the category was he did, he ended up being an obedient man. However, in it imperfectly, he kept my charges, my commandments, and my statutes, and my laws. And I kind of see the idea of it as like, look, at the guy had a battle throughout his whole life, but he ended the whole thing obedient. That's a cool place to be, don't you think? And I think about people like Paul, who throughout his whole ministry would say, you know what, I leave what is behind and I press forward for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And you know, in the end of it all, I really want to be found faithful because what I really would really hate would be for, for me to actually preach all of this truth and then find myself disqualified in the end. Wouldn't that be horrible? But at the last letter he writes in 2 Timothy, he's the one who goes, you know what? I fought the fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. See, in the end of it all, I ended up obedient. I ended up with Christ. See, we look at people like David versus Saul, and what makes David like Paul so unique in it is that they never swapped gods in all of this. They might have tried to head, like you look at David, he actually went into Philistine territory and backslid for 16 months, but he never swapped gods. He started with the same one. He was miserable when he wasn't where he belonged, and he repented and he went back into the arms of the God he loved. Now look, it, wouldn't it even be better to not ever have that, that far country experience in the first place? And you just walked with them your entire life? Wouldn't that be better? I mean, every scar I bear from those memories of those moments when I didn't know the Lord beforehand or those stupid moments where I actually chose something wrong afterwards. Well, in all of this, back in this text now, there's still a famine, I remind you. But in that famine, he's dwelling in Gerar, and we find there's a problem, and the problem is these wells. In verse 15, we read that the Philistines had stopped up all of the wells in which the father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, and they filled them, notice, with earth. Now, whoever these Philistines could be a type of, one thing's for sure, they're always going to be a pain in the neck or the side or wherever you want to put them. They're going to be a pain to God's people. And interesting, the first thing I find is that they're constantly dirtying and muddying up and filling this Area, by the way, you remember, well is what you live off of. And here you are, you're, you know, you're dwelling in this land, and one of the first things you look for is, we need water. We, I mean, we can't live without water. Where's water? And you go, oh, there's a well. And all of a sudden, you find that the Philistines are constantly kicking the, the world and dirt back into this thing you're supposed to live off of. Now, funny, because here he is now, he's in this place where he recognizes, I'm not going to go down to Egypt. I'm going to try to figure this one out. I'm going to try to follow you on this, Lord. I'm not going to go to Egypt. I'm still dwelling somewhere on the territory, but I'm going to start moving. And as he does, he starts moving north, which is where he should be moving. In all of that, he finds this particular one. Now, why is it that they're doing this? Because notice what it said in verse 14. He had possessions of flocks, possessions of herds, great number of servants, and the Philistines envied him. What happens is God is starting to prosper him in ways that the world recognizes, and they envy him for it. So they're like, you know what we need to do? We need to, we need to put some more world into their wells right now. And what I find is interesting is what we find with, with Abraham is he always seems to be a guy that's going from altar to altar. But what seems to be the case with Isaac, he seems to be a, a guy that's going from well to well. And that's what you see in his life. As a matter of fact, you'll find him against, we'll only find one altar that he builds. It'll be in this chapter. But we always seem to find him next to a well somewhere. Now, with that in mind, it, you know, and remember, by the way, that's even where his bride was found, if you remember that, by a well. Now, in this situation, they're, duddy, they're muddying this up. And so what happens is Abimelech says to him, um, verse 16, Go away from us. You're much mightier than we are. Which, by the way, is a precursor of, of Exodus 1.9. And then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And that's that word Yeshav again. Again, he's starting to make roots again instead of kind of just be there temporarily. Isaac took wells of water, verse uh, 18, 
in which they dug in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham, and he called them by names which the father had called them. And this becomes where we start to see ourselves restored out of the famine. If we're going to find ourselves out of the famine, the first thing we need to do is go back to the wells. We need to go back to the wells our father had dug. And this is where it happens. Now listen, let me step outside of your personal life and mine for a moment and just talk about the church. The church of Jesus Christ was founded on Jesus Christ. That should be a no-brainer, right? They were unashamed of his name and they were willing to die for it. Him, not just it, but him. And they went from that and they trusted in the power of God's Holy Spirit to give them the very power and the unction to be, to be bold and to be refreshed. And that Holy Spirit was spoken of like living water. We trusted in God's Holy Spirit. Not as a dog and pony show, not to create great signs and wonders first and foremost, but for us personally as the catalyst of intimacy between us and the living God. That's what we knew. We trusted the gospel was the power of salvation. We trusted the Holy Spirit was the one who convicts. And we trusted somehow in it that if we could bring them to God, he could fix them, just like the disciples thought back in Matthew chapter 5. That's where we started. And someone said, you know, the problem is you're not very culturally relevant. You need to do something flashier. You need to do something like an X factor, but maybe you could turn it sideways and make it like a cross and be like the cross factor. And you could get some grumpy guy and call him Paul maybe and stick him back there and get, ah, and every time someone try, we try to make, him, make it something more entertaining. We need to make it more entertaining. And you know that gospel, that's offensive. So you shouldn't really be doing the gospel thing. What you need to do is try to do something like the happy, happy fun club and everyone can join. And then that maybe they can wake up one day and wonder if they're saved. Maybe that could happen. And in the end of it all, let's make sure we have more ice cream socials and less prayer groups, because nobody wants to go to a prayer group. Everybody sleeps at those things. And don't teach the Bible, because I mean, are you really going to teach about things like homosexuality is wrong and Jesus is the only way and all that? That's going to offend people. So we don't really want to do that. So let's actually find, let's actually spend more time in the newspaper and find social issues and then talk about things like how to better manage your money. And in the end of it all, what we'll have is a bunch of people who are pretty good citizens going to hell like everybody else. But you'll have a lot of people in the church. What's interesting is if you really wanted to fill the church, why don't you just offer free beer? That should do it for everybody, I would think. I mean, you'd be like, you know, we're going to have church on Saturday night, and I tell you what, it's back. Thousands of people are there. All right, so are the police. You know, But in the end of it all, there is a, there is a beer they need to come to because, the, because beer is a Hebrew word, and it means the well. And interesting, what happens here is that Isaac in the famine goes, you know what, I need to go back and find some wells. I need to go back and find my dad's wells because my dad followed the Lord and somewhere in all of that, there were wells and he, they were tried and true. He named them and the places when he named them, he, I'm going to call them what my dad called them, where he called them because there was clearly water there. And something strange happens. I have a tendency to think if a well was there because there was water, it's a pretty good possibility there's still water there. And just like us individually, where we find ourselves running after all kinds of things, so is the church, beloved, because if we're running after stuff, why wouldn't the church? And so what we find in all of this now is that somewhere down the line, we've got to go back to the wells, the real wells, the tried and true wells, the well of the gospel of Jesus Christ, from which is the foundation that the church should be built on. The name of Jesus Christ that should be exalted. Not the Jesus manby pamby that we make up, but the real Jesus Christ of Scripture and the truth of the Bible where we're not going to go and go, you know, I don't really agree with this, so I'm not going to teach this today. One of the fun things about going straight through Scripture is it's just there. You have to deal with it. I would much rather offend you with the truth into heaven than massage you into hell any day. It tells us, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of the enemy are deceitful. Do you know what that means? You could be like, oh, I got oh, kissy, kissy. Well, that's nice. And then you got stabbed in the back. I would much rather punch you in the gut and say, now stop running to Egypt. Now, if you're going to have a counseling meeting with me, don't expect me to literally punch you. That's it. I'm canceling my appointment. Listen to this. Do you know what God finds abhorrent? I mean, what he actually hates those who remove the ancient landmarks. That's what he tells us in Proverbs 22 and Deuteronomy 27. And he says, when that happens, a person who does that, they're to be cursed. And he goes, and I want all of the church, all of the people to say amen. So he's like, look it, you move from those things, the church isn't, this isn't a place where we vote. 
God's like, look at this isn't a congregational voting thing. It isn't like, look at how do you guys feel about homosexuality today? Is it different? You know, is it different? Are we culturally different than the Corinthians? If it's a little different, why don't we just vote on it and go, oh, we're going to back off and let priests do that now? Or, you know what, how do you feel about adultery? How do we feel about, you know, about kind of premarital sex? Are you going to be okay with that? Because, no, I mean, after all, nobody stays, I mean, nobody's like that now today. And God says, look it, here's the deal. Let all men be liars and God be true. That's what it says. He says, look at this. Is, God's like, I don't need your vote on this. I know the truth and I know you better than you know you. And here's the deal. Here's my rule on it. And in it, you just say, amen. Now you go, well, that sounds mean. Actually, no, because God knows you. Imagine when it's like, let's all take a vote. Cancer feels really good. And we're going to actually be able to drink something right here. We're going to hand it out to everyone. Who wants some of this? Who wants some cyanide Kool-Aid with Jim Jones? Hey, after all, it tastes really good. It's good going down. God says, look at that's bad. It doesn't matter what, you know, cyanide on steak, cyanide in in pudding, cyanide in a pie, cyanide in Kool-Aid. still cyanide. Still bad. We're not going to God's like, I don't need to take a vote on it. And you go, but it tastes really good with Kool-Aid. God's like, but it's still bad. That's the point. Now, in our text here, God says, look at it. I don't want that. Listen to this. Any of you immediately, those of you who are a bit familiar with Scripture, go to Jeremiah 2. God says, let me tell you this about, listen, he says, my people. Not about the unbeliever. This is about my people. Can you get to Jeremiah 2 if you want to? If you can get there. It's a pretty big book. If you get to the book of Isaiah, you've gone too far to the, to the left. Well, actually, start in Genesis. You're going to go right of it anyway. And this is what he says in Jeremiah 2, verse 13. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, according to this, what is that living water? What is that well? It's the Lord himself. See, understand, God isn't just going, look at I really hate the fact that you moved from this doctrine to that doctrine. I hate the fact that you went from liturgical to charismatic or charismatic to liturgical. Or I really don't like the fact that you went to a church farther away. Or I don't like the... That's not what God's talking about. Look at When God says you're training, the one thing that God doesn't want you training is Him. And my wife said, you know, I decided I wanted to be a redhead today. I could be like, wow, so you traded in being a blonde for a redhead. There you go. I decided today to change my wardrobe and I want to go black studded leather. Now, we all can agree if you're familiar with my wife, we'd all go, mm, that's probably not going to happen. In the end of it, I'll be like, well, okay, so you decided to change it. Now, I've been with my wife long enough to know when she'd be like, I decided to change from this career to that career, from this idea, from that idea. And after a while, you're just kind of like, I'm just going to sit here and, and let you go. But the one thing that I would, and that stuff doesn't offend me, but could you imagine after 22 years of my wife to say, you know, I decided to trade you in for a younger model. Now, that would bum me out. You would understand that, right? I, mean, I would be a little bit different of a person up here. Well, imagine the Lord who loves us implicitly, perfectly. See, according to this text, what God is saying through Jeremiah is, you're not just trading in church stuff, churchiosity or religion. He goes, you're trading me in. Paul, in, in the book of Galatians, says, I am so blown away, and this is a loose paraphrase, chapter one, that you are leaving him who called you for another gospel, which isn't a gospel at all. See, he's not saying you swapped one doctrine for another. He goes, are you trading in Jesus for this? And in the end of it all, if it isn't about Jesus, you're in trouble. Because in the time of persecution, no denomination or non-denomination or movement or amulet or cool little club or whatever is going to be anything worth standing on when somebody is holding a knife to your throat. But if Jesus is standing with you, you'll have the strength to actually stand. So what happens here? He's opening up these wells. Listen. Jesus said in John 14, if you remember, at another well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but if they come to the water that I give them, it will become a fountain of living water springing up out of them into everlasting life. Isaiah 44:22 says, I've blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, like a cloud your sins. Return to me. Not return to your doctrine, return to your church, 
You return to me. I redeemed you. Jeremiah 3.1 says, If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and he be- she becomes another man's, would he return to her again? Would not the land be greatly polluted? But you've played the harlot with many lovers, and yet please return to me, says the Lord. Zechariah 1.3 Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 3.7 says of the same. Revelation 2.5. And this one's the one, to be honest, it's most painful. Because this was a church that looked like they were doing everything right. I mean, these people weren't. Listen, and, and if I can bear my soul for a moment here. Twice in the last month and some, we've come in here on a Saturday night to set this place up. And there are people in a circle here doing meditation. I mean, we're talking about stuff that's clearly not biblical. And man, I'm so... So grieved over it. It really, really bothers me. And and we pray, God, for all the nonsense that took place here tonight. And I can't help but think in Scripture, oh, God, as a prophet peeked through a wall and he goes, look at what's happening in my temple. I can't help but see the same thing. And it's easy for me at moments like that to look and go, look at how far an institution can go. And yet in Revelation 2, God's speaking to the Ephesian church. He says, you know what? You got your doctrine tight. Man, you can pick out a phony from a mile away, man. Someone's a false teacher, false apostle, you know them. They're like, don't go playing that game with me, man. When you start getting into scripture, I'll fill you full of holes. Because you know what the problem is? You left your first love. You're so right, you're dead right. You've you've gotten you're so busy being right. Listen, listen, listen. You're so busy being right that you forgot to be with me. You know what God says as a result of that? He doesn't say, I'm so sick of this. We're done! Which one of us probably would if we were God. So praise God, we're not. But this is what he says. In Revelation 2, he says, Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works. Now, can I just say it this way? Remember, repent, and return. That's what God's asking. That's what God's demanding. And there's a part of me that looks at Isaac at the moment and he's going back to the wells that his dad dug. Follow me on this for a moment and let's go around to closing this. Because by the way, when you go back to those, don't expect it to be without some form of struggle. Because the posse you've chosen to hang out with now aren't going to be real hip on the fact you're going back to Jesus. You're aware of that, right? It says then, Verse 19, and by the way, it tells us, remember in, in verse 18, that he called it by the names in which his father called him. I'm not going to call it, a, you know, a little fling. I'm going to call it adultery. I'm not going to call it a little bit of this. I'm going to call it, por- pornography is pornography. It's still sexual sin. I'm not going to call it a few drinks and getting tipsy. I'm going to call it drunkenness. I'm not going to call it hanging out at the club for a little bit. I'm call it carousing, as God tells us. Verse 19, Isaac's servants dug in the valley and they found a well of running water there. Notice what they discovered. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with these with Isaac's herdsmen and they said, the water's ours. So they called the name of the place Esech. Can you say Esech? Esech means strife because they quarreled with him. So they dug another well and they quarreled over that one. So we called it Sitnach. Would you say Sitnach? Which means opposition. So we moved from there and dug another well. They didn't quarrel over this one, so we called it Rehabot. Would you say Rehabot? Which means, well, as he says, he says, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in land. And it means an open road. That's basically what it means. And I look at this and I realize, okay, so here I am, I want to return back, and this is what's going to happen. I'm going to go back to those wells, man. I'm going to be serious about the Lord. I'm going to go back to Jesus. And in all of that, all of a sudden it's like, okay, there's strife. There's strife for people. Like, what are you doing? And then after a while I started to realize that strife isn't just discomfort because there's a part of me that doesn't want to do it. Oh, I'm going to go back to some devotion time. And it's like I'm waking up in the morning. I'm all excited. And I'm like, oh, Lord, I just can't wait to read. Oh, what, in the, what in the world? What's going on? Uh, you know, and I find myself, you know what, I need to get a treadmill in my house because at least I can be like, all right, Lord, all right, I'm going to read, I'm going to read. So I can't find out. You know, I'm like, wait a minute, okay, wait a minute. There's going to be strife. And I'm going to deal with that because people are like, what? 
You look at someone, and this happens so often. A girl goes out with some guy. She was backslid, and he was okay then. Then she got all excited about the Lord, and the guy goes, what, I was good enough before? And if she could be honest, she'd be like, but you ain't good enough now. Because I actually replaced you, and I replaced you with the guy that I left for you, which is Jesus. And then after that, you see the opposition. But in the end of it all, God says, now you have an open road. But notice verse 23. They went up from there to Beersheba. Why is that so important? Beloved, please hear me out. Beersheba was the place Abraham left with Isaac to go to Moriah. And it was the place that they went back to after Isaac was almost sacrificed on that hill. You know what he went back to? The place where we got to the sacrifice. And beloved, if you've walked away from the Lord and you're not walking tight with Him or whatever the case is, might I just say to you, the Lord is here today to take you back. But you know where it starts? Go back to this. And what does bir mean? Do you remember? Well, shiva means covenant or seven. You go back to the place of God's promise. That's where we go, to the well of God's promise. And I want to go back to the cross where I belong. Not just to the place where, where it was so complicated and convoluted, but the place where it was just me and Jesus saying, you know what, I need you. I don't just want you, I need you. You're my life. And with that then, what will happen at the end of it all? That group of people that was so tight with you and hanging out and telling you to leave. They're, you know, they're causing all the quarrels and strife. What's going to happen? Look at it. It says, verse 24, the Lord appeared to him a second time now. The same night, he says, I'm the God of your father. Notice, I am now. Don't fear. I'm with you. Now, what's interesting is at the beginning of this journey, at the end of it, he's with us. We just had a lot to learn. He says, I'm with you. I'll bless you. I'll multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So we built an altar there and called the name of the Lord. He pitched his tent there. And his servants then, guess what they did? They dug a well. So Abimelech came from Gerar. Remember, that was that king that he was sporting with his wife in front of. And he came with a couple of guys. One guy's name means possession, and the other one means mouth of all. That's Fichol Azuzah is the first. And Isaac says, why have you come to me since you hate me? He cast me away from him. And he says, look, we've certainly seen, notice, the Lord is with you. That's what we've come to recognize funny here i was in all of this running from god in this place of famine going from place to place and god goes i'm going back to the well and after i'm back at the well and here i am and finally satisfied i'm back where i belong back at that place of sacrifice and someone shows up and goes you know i happen to notice the lord's with you and then interesting would appear here with that then he says so look at would there be an oath between you and me you and us let there be uh, make a covenant with you then you'll do it that you'll do us no harm since we've not touched you. Okay, we won't talk about that wells thing. But since we've done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace, because you're now, you are now, now blessed of the Lord. So what did he do? He made him a feast. They ate and drank. They rose early in the morning, swore an oath to one another, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. It came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug, and they said, We found water. So he called the place Shiva which again means covenant or seven. Therefore, the place is called Beersheba again. It's called that. So that's where we end this portion of it. So we started in a place where we left and we went towards Egypt and God said, don't go there, don't get there. Well, I won't go there, but I'll hang close. He's moving us north inch by inch, moving us and finally, where do we wind up? Back where we belong. And my prayer is none of you would leave here. None of you, none of you would leave here except right where you belong, in the arms of the living God. Have you gotten cocky? Have you gotten cheeky about your, your understanding of the gospel, of your understanding of the Bible? Have you gotten real busy with all of the things that are more about church than Jesus? Have you left a relationship for those things? Because, you know, you can leave a good thing for, bad, for things that appear to be good. I can avoid my wife and be doing ministry all the time that has nothing to do with her, but in the end of it, I'll let my wife for it. It's not worth it. I could orphan my children for the ministry, but that's not worth it for me. And in the end of it all, beloved, there are things that could appear good that you could be so sucked into that you've left the relationship with the Lord for it. Well, I'm here just to say, as we go to prayer, friends, please don't walk out of here the way you came in if that's the case. So maybe there is a famine in your life. Well, I'd like to invite you back to the well. 
not a well that there's just enough for a cup for each of us, the one that's going to be so filling that out of you. Do you remember when it was that you actually operated in the overflow? Where it actually came out of you and you just didn't try to get it in you? So the Lord wants that today. Would you pray with me? Lord, we recognize today in this room that there are people from all different kinds of places in, in their walk with you. We recognize today, Lord, in this room that there may be people, Lord, clearly you've ordained people to hear this that may have been, they're, they're in their own garage. They're busy trying to pour concrete where they should be pitching their tent. And God, I just pray today for every one of us who have been busy trying to make a home out of this world instead of a ministry. I pray for every person here who has gotten sidetracked by even things that appear to be good. And it may actually even be good in the right proportion. But somehow down the line, the one thing that's suffered has been our relationship with you. Lord, I recognize that in this room right now, you desire for every one of us to be at a state of overflow. Now, for if there be any who have not accepted the gift of your Son, Father, I pray right now that you would speak to them the truth of your gospel. That the way that you reconciled man to you was by paying for his sin on the cross of your Son, Jesus the Christ. And I pray today for every one of us that we will, that's where we will build our home. At the cross where we belong. The place where you, Jesus, are our foundation and our cornerstone. And Lord, I pray that even as you promised that a well, Lord, in John 4, that if we come to you, that out of us will torrent living water. That ultimately, the wildest part is that when we come to the living well that you are, that we ourselves become wells for others. What an amazing gift that is. And I pray right now, if there be any who have not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, that they would be willing to pray with me. But I don't want to just offer it to them. I want to pray for every person here who may be in that place where they're recognizing, I'm not where I should be. I should be in a state of overflow, and I'm not. I've gotten caught up in a politic. I've gotten caught up in a practice or a ritual or a routine. But in that routine, I, I'm not really investing in my relationship with the Lord. Well, I want to thank you, Lord, for this text that has so clearly brought us back to that place to, to check inventory ourselves. Lord, I know that in any relationship, I can't develop any intimacy with someone I won't spend time with. Even if I spend time about, when I just pray right now, Lord, that we would go back to the well, that we would remember where we came from, that we would repent and return. Back to those things that were just so simple and where we didn't read the Bible for the purpose of being able to argue better, but we read your word because we wanted to know you better. Or we didn't pray first and foremost just so that we could get something more, but we prayed because we just wanted to talk with you. Or we didn't go to church because we were expected to, but we went because we wanted to, because we wanted to be around other people who love you just like we do. And God, I just pray right now that you'd bring us back to that place where we didn't worship because we wanted to get some good experience, some good feeling. We didn't praise for that, but instead we praised you because our heart was overflowing with gratitude. Would you bring us to that place, Lord? And as we pray this prayer of rededication, we pray right now, Lord, that you would take us seriously. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I need you. I need you to transform me. Forgive me of everything as I confess to you my need for your saving. I openly declare Jesus you dying on a cross for my sins, just like your Scripture promised. Raising from the dead, just like your Scripture promised. Offering me complete absolution of my guilt. 
offering me innocence. But not for innocence sake, but for the sake of having a relationship with you. So right now, put me in that right relationship you desire me to have with you. Where you're big and I'm small. Where your will be done, not mine. And so I surrender to your gift. Father, have me. Make me yours. And may my life be lived in celebration of the relationship I have with you. As I confess you as my dad, and I praise you. I praise you for saving me and making me yours. In Jesus' name.